Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. GX on Agriculture. With Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, Saskatchewan farmers are expressing support for Canada's first ever Indo-Pacific Agriculture Office. We'll hear from Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt with his reaction to the news. Meanwhile, Saskatchewan's General Farm Group appeared in Ottawa yesterday to highlight the right of farmers to repair their machinery. We'll hear from APAS President Ian Boxall, who represented Saskatchewan farmers at that meeting. Plenty of changes in fertilizer pricing in the past six months, with some products remaining high and others declining in price. We'll hear from Josh Linville, who is the Director of Fertilizer at Stonex in the United States. And, of course, we'll have our weekly overview of the wheat market with Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture in Winnipeg. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Saskatchewan farmers are expressing support for Canada's first ever Indo-Pacific Agriculture Office. Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibot says the office will receive almost $32 million in funding to support expanded farm trade in the Indo-Pacific region. Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt welcomes the announcement. We're, uh, you know, very glad to see that the federal government has made a commitment to uh, obviously a trade and in this in this region. Uh, it really does just help pull into line with our offices. We have four in the region with India, China, Japan and Singapore. So uh, obviously we see some great opportunity for us. That's why we've opened those offices and uh, we can see, you know, a collaboration here where we can uh, obviously work uh, with the federal government, but it's good to see that they they see the importance of this region and the importance of, that it brings to Canada on the trade side. He says the Indo-Pacific region is a huge market for Saskatchewan. We see a great opportunity here. We really do, and I think it even showcases uh, when you look at uh, Agribition, you know, and the and the folks that were here from you know from that region as well. So uh, we just see it as a as a great opportunity. We're starting to see. A lot of the, uh, you know, the companies here in the province of Saskatchewan are starting to do some business into that area. Uh, we're seeing trade grow in Vietnam and things like that. Japan is obviously a very big customer of ours that we really want to build on that trade. So, and that's why in Singapore, uh, India, we see obviously the growth is, is really growing there as well. Uh, we've done trade missions there and I'm sure we will continue just because we see the importance of India to Obviously not just to the pulse sector, but there's, there's other opportunities as well. Merritt admits China has been an issue for Canada in the past. Yeah, there has, and, you know, uh, we're always concerned, but, I mean, China still buys product, and, uh, you know, all we, could, all we really like to do is be able to work with the companies that do business there and just to ensure that, uh, you know, there's no challenges around that like we've had in the past with trade challenges with a couple of the big companies here in the province of Saskatchewan. So, you know, we'll continue to work with those companies. I think our trade offices 
are, are very important for these companies to be able to use those trade offices to obviously build relationships. But if they do have challenges or concerns, we can obviously assist when we have all boots on the ground. He notes that agribition last week in Regina went very well. I attended the show virtually every day. Uh, uh, the only day I didn't get there was Saturday, but uh, it, it's, it's a great opportunity. It was great to see the, a lot of kids in, in the facilities again, a lot of exhibitors again, a well-run show you know, by Sean and the, and the board and the entire team. But as I've said, and I'll continue to say, it's amazing the volunteers that they get to really help out to put this show on, you know, on the world stage. And it really is when you see so many countries there uh, and delegations. I, I was going through the barns and I, I saw a, a contingent from Mexico talking to some, uh, some breeders about some stock there as well. So it's good to see that. Merritt was also shocked to hear that Canadian Cattle Association President Reg Schellenberg passed away last Friday. I'm very, very uh, saddened to hear of Reg's passing, and my condolences go out to Reg and to his entire family. I, I was shocked. I had a, a good visit with Reg and his wife on on Wednesday night at the Premier's uh, reception here at the Legislature. And Reg has been a strong advocate for the livestock sector, for the cattle industry here, and not only in Saskatchewan, but Western Canada. Uh, I've had the privilege to know Reg for quite a few years now, and I just want to, um, really, it, it, it shocked me when I heard it, but uh, Reg has been on the calls with many of the calls that I made to the industry all through uh, COVID when we were dealing, obviously, last year with the drought and, and the challenges we had around that, around the cattle industry, and he was a first-class gentleman, a great advocate for the uh, livestock industry and particularly the cattle industry, but he will truly be missed. That's Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt. It's time now for the Beef and Forage Report, and that's a presentation of Lane Realty. When it's time to sell the farm, call Lane Realty, your trusted and experienced farmland real estate company. To include your property for showings, call 620-7260 or visit lanerealty.com. Beef and Forage Report. Alberta is providing additional support to the livestock sector. The provincial government is increasing its support for the Feeder Association Loan Guarantee Program from $100 million to $150 million. Alberta introduced the Feeder Association Loan Guarantee Program in 1936 during the Great Depression. It has guaranteed about $11 billion in financing to Alberta livestock feeders in that time. It provides capital to farmers through low-interest leveraged financing backed by a government guarantee. The program typically finances between 17 and 24 percent of the calf crop each year, providing a significant portion of the industry's lending requirement. To be eligible for financing, a farmer must be at least 18 years old and approved by a local feeder association. And that's today's Beef and Forage Report. It's time now for the AgReview portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, AgReview. Speculators in the Ice Futures canola were busy liquidating long positions and adding to the short side of the market 
during the last week of November. That's caused the net short position to grow to its largest level in two months, according to the latest Commitments of Traders report compiled by the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The net managed money short position in ICE Canola came in last Tuesday at 19,721 contracts, an increase of about 16,000 from the previous week on a combination of long liquidation and new shorts going on the books. Open interest in the canola market decreased by 6,562 contracts during the week to 234,153. Investors are pressing America's big railroads to add sick time into contracts for their workers. The major freight railroads are now facing pressure from investors to add sick days after Congress declined to require them as part of the contracts they imposed last week to avert a potentially devastating nationwide rail strike. The Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility says that two investment managers it works with filed proposals at Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern Railroads to allow shareholders to vote on whether rail workers should get paid sick leave. Similar proposals are likely at CSX and BNSF's parent company, Berkshire Hathaway. The lack of paid sick time in the industry has become a major sticking point this fall in contract talks between the railroads and their 12 unions. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Meanwhile, the U.S. government has spent more than $100 million over the past eight years trying but failing to control damage from feral pigs. While the invasive animals have been wiped out in 11 of the 41 states where they were reported in 2014 or 2015, as many as 9 million are still ravaging their landscape. The swine cause about $2.5 billion a year in damage, tearing up planted fields, out-competing deer and turkeys, and eating turkey eggs and fawns. They also carry parasites and disease and pollute streams and rivers with their feces. An average winter is in the forecast for most of the Canadian prairies, according to the latest long-range seasonal forecast for December through February from Environment Canada. They're calling for normal temperatures across all the agricultural areas of the three prairie provinces, aside from the northernmost reaches of Alberta's grain-growing area into the Peace River District, where there's a 40% chance of below-normal temperatures. Precipitation is expected to be normal across most of Manitoba and southern Saskatchewan, with a 40-50% to chance of above-normal moisture in Alberta and northern Saskatchewan, but most of eastern Canada, from Ontario through the Maritime Provinces, are forecast to see above-normal temperatures over the next three months. Science misinformation about genetically modified crops and foods had a potential global readership of over a quarter of a billion people, according to a new study published by the Alliance for Science, which combats anti-science misinformation on topics such as climate, vaccines and GMOs. The study assessed top English language media from around the world with stories published over a two-year period between January of 2019 and January of 2021. Articles were assessed for misinformation defined as statements that disregard with the scientific consensus on the safety of genetic engineering. Overall, 9% of the 535 relevant articles containing GMO-related keywords 
contained misinformation. This false information was considered likely to have had a potential reach of 256 million people. Africa saw the highest instances of the problem, where one-fifth of media coverage of genetically modified foods contained misinformation. The figures for North America and Europe were 5% and 7%, respectively. And that's the Ag Review portion of our program. Please stay tuned. GX and Agriculture will be back in one minute's time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and minus 26 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. Saskatchewan's General Farm Group appeared in Ottawa yesterday to highlight the right of farmers to repair their machinery. APAS President Ian Boxall spoke to the Commons Committee on Industry and Technology pointing to the need for farmers to have access to the computer programs used in their equipment. So it was the Industry and Technology Committee, and it was researching Bill C-244, which is the right to repair on equipment and all sorts of stuff, from your dishwasher to your cell phone to your car to your tractor, all of that. So I presented to them that, you know, as long as there's been farmers and farm equipment, farmers have fixed it, and that needs to continue. He says there's some regulations already on the books. I think there's some regulations around the fact that the ability for farmers or third-party repair shops to get access to some of the software is limited. So you buy a new combine and then you are not able to diagnose it yourself, and I think that needs changed. You get out in the landscape here and you get two hours from the closest dealer and how sensitive our time is and how short our seasons are, We need to be able to have every tool in the toolbox to diagnose and fix our equipment as we see fit, right? Boxall was pleased with the reception he received. No, I think it was positive. I think the committee, from my take on the committee, I think they agree that that is probably a right of the equipment, of the person that's buying the equipment. And in the same token, I don't want to discount that the manufacturers have, have done a great job of developing the technology and the stuff that we use now in our equipment but in the same token we need to be able to do to repair it in the most effective and efficient manner possible he notes it's hard to get a dealership to send out a repair person in a timely manner absolutely and time is the key thing here you know we know that a day lost in in seeding or in harvest can result in quality quantity and and dollars lost to the producer and and anything we can do to alleviate that is important Boxall notes he will be making a written presentation as well. So the APAS is in the middle currently of putting together a brief that we will submit to the committee with just expanding on everything I talked about yesterday at the committee more in depth about the farmer's right to repair their equipment. He wants farmers to have more access to the software being used in farm equipment. Absolutely, so that they can diagnose. And yes, there's some equipment now that, you know, the dealership can phone in remotely or log in remotely and diagnose. But let's be honest, that only works if you have adequate cell service. So in areas of the province where you don't have cell service and you bought that equipment with that technology, it doesn't work. So yes, farmers need to be able to diagnose, and whether that is through computers or however, they need to be able to diagnose their equipment with what's wrong. Ian Boxall of Tisdale is the president of the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. The farm group holds its annual meeting Thursday and Friday in Saskatoon. It's time now for the livestock market conditions 
and their presentation of Heartland Livestock in Verdon. Livestock Market Conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 153.75, down 207. April live cattle trading at 157.70, down 187. March, uh, make that January feeder cattle trading at 181.60, down 217. March feeder cattle trading at 183.95, down 242. February lean hogs trading at 87 even, that's down 352. April lean hogs trading at 92.75, down 307. And that's the livestock market conditions. Please stay tuned. GX and Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX and Agriculture. A weekly overview of the wheat market has been provided by Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture. It was issued through the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission yesterday afternoon. U.S. wheat futures dropped to multi-month lows as Black Sea wheat filled significant demand by Turkey, Algeria and Pakistan at big discounts to U.S. wheat prices. There are also reports that Mexico is continuing to buy Black Sea wheat. Weekly data showed that CBOT wheat spec traders extended their net short by 666 contracts to 54,000 during the week that ended November 29th. The funds were little changed on the net Kansas City wheat and in Minneapolis spring wheat spec traders were 770 contracts more net short via light net selling with 1,429 contracts net short as of November 29th. The upcoming WASDE report comes out on the 9th of December, that's next Friday. We do not expect a lot of change in this next week's WASDE report. Futures remain volatile. In terms of cash markets last week, there was quite a lot of action by Black Sea Origins. Turkey's TMO bought 455,000 tons of D through Jan wheat from Russia. Jordan passed on that tender, but Algeria bought 450,000 tons of wheat for January at 354 to 356 per ton, also from the Black Sea. Pakistan bought its 500,000 tons of wheat at low prices, likely from Russia, with offers at 372 per ton basis Karachi. Thailand bought 123,000 tons of Australian feed wheat for June at 349 per ton, and the Philippines also bought 123,000 tons of Australian wheat at 349 US per metric ton. US weekly export sales of 155,000 tons were well below trade estimates, and the season total of 494 million bushel is now down 6% on last year against the USDA's Three projected 3% drop. This begs a general comment on the demand side. There are reports that Mexico is continuing to buy black seaweed and Russian wheat got most of the recent tender business as mentioned above. Black seaweed will take most of the nearby demand, but there are also reports that EU farmers are already 80% committed with their wheat, which could result in tightness in the second half of the season. 
to continue on here some of last week's major news by major wheat origin, starting with Canada per usual. Statistics Canada published their final 2022 crop production report of the year last Friday. Yield assessments in the final report were generally closer to the yield assessments by the provincial agriculture agencies than StatScan had in the September report. STC assessed total Canadian wheat production at 33.8 million tons, which is the third biggest crop for wheat in Canada ever. Specifically, spring wheat was packed at 25.7 million tons and Durham at 5.4 million. Perhaps most significantly, while the wheat crop is quite large, this final estimate is lower compared to the StatScan September estimate by 879,000 tons for all wheat, by 374,000 tons for spring wheat, and by 674,000 tons for durum wheat. The trade was expecting a similar total wheat production estimate of 34.8 million tons, but the trade estimate for spring wheat was at 25.9 million, slightly higher than the StatScan number. The StatScan report can be viewed as slightly supportive of spring wheat this winter and spring. If you're interested in these numbers, have a look at the table in the written report. Regarding exports, another 421,000 tons of wheat was exported in week 17 for a season total of 6.4 million tons. At the current pace, we would export 19.5 million tons of wheat. AFC is expecting 18.5 million tons of wheat exports. That's wheat excluding Durham. Moving on to Durham, the final StatScan Durham production estimate at 5.4 million tons is a significant 674,000 tons smaller than the September StatScan estimate. The trade was still expecting Durham production to come in around 5.9 million tons. Well, the 22 crop Durham production is still 79% bigger than the small 2021 crop. It is more than a million tons smaller than the 2020 crop. The final STC report is supportive Durham prices. Regarding export performance, exports over the past few weeks have somewhat improved. 194,000 tons were exported in week 17, but average weekly export are just 87,000 tons compared to 101,000 per week that is needed to reach export targets. Regarding international values, we note that Durham prices in Italy fell slightly by 3 euros per ton over the past week. In the US, export sales fell behind further to 6% below last year's sales against the USDA projected 3% decline. That is slightly concerning. The US rail strike has mostly been averted by government action, forcing the unions to accept the deal given prior. This will help movement um, which was fearing the strike. Regarding new crop 23 wheat, USDA reported winter wheat emergence at 91% in its final 22 crop progress report on November 29th. This was a 4% increase from last week and is 1% above the five-year average. Winter wheat rated good or excellent increased by two points week over week, week to 34%. However, we note that winter and spring moisture tend to have a greater impact on crop development than crop conditions 
than what crop conditions look like going into the winter hibernation period. Moving to Australia, Australian wheat futures headed to their lowest weekly close in three months, having shed 105 Australian dollars per ton during the month of November. That translates to buck 95 per bushel. We can say that the Australian wheat harvest is progressing. Reports still state that yields in the West are strong and quality in the East is not as bad as originally feared. And again, Philippines and Thailand each bought 123,000 tons of Australian wheat last week, 349 per ton. In Argentina, the crop update by Bash put the wheat harvest at 23% complete. That's about half of last year's 45% and half of the five-year average of 44%. Crop ratings were unchanged at only 8% good to excellent compared to 65% last year. Barge left the crop estimate unchanged at 12.4 million tons, despite an average yield of only 1.56 metric tons per hectare so far. The yield is below the reduced expectations, and the production number could end up lower than the 12.4 million stated by Barge. In the EU, Matif wheat reversed Wednesday's gains, dropping back to its lowest intraday close since mid-August pushed by a five-month high in the euro and by by Russia taking most of the export business last week. EU shipments are well ahead of the official data and farmers are already up to 80% committed and are currently not sellers. Cash wheat could become increasingly tight in the second half of the campaign. In the Black Sea, Russian shipments suffered from bad weather and Ukrainian shipments slowed due to logistics and inspection delays in Turkey. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has been extended by 120 days, as you likely know, but logistical issues continue on. Specifically, there are about 77 vessels awaiting inspection in Turkey. Ukrainian exports will be under 3 million tons for November, which is down from the 4.2 million tons achieved in October. The outlook for South Russia and Eastern Ukraine has some severe cold weather with no snow cover on the winter crops. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, close to 2 million tons of wheat were sold this week from the Black Sea into various export markets. So how do we summarize this week? December is always a very difficult month to predict. We expect it to end little change from the current levels. Cash prices in the Middle East will continue to be led by Russia and by developments in the Ukraine. In our view, the balance sheet remains tight and we do not expect a lot of change in the next Worcester report that comes out on Friday. Russian cash prices remain lower but will be less aggressive in the new year. Our recommendation remains the same, no new sales until the new year. That's Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture in Winnipeg. It's time now for the Commodities Update and that's a presentation of Hackman Feeds. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading down across the board this afternoon. January canola trading at 848.90, down $10.10. March canola trading at $838 per metric ton, down $12. 
March Minneapolis wheat trading at 892 and 3 quarters, down 9 and a quarter cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 826 and 3 quarters, down 15 cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 726 and a quarter, down 12 and 3 quarters of a cent. March corn trading at 637 per bushel, down 3 and a half cents. March soybeans trading at 1457 per bushel, that's up 12 cents. March oats trading at 334 and a half, down 1 and a quarter cents. And that's the commodities update. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Plenty of changes in fertilizing pricing in the past six months, with some products remaining high and others declining in price. Josh Linville is the director of fertilizer at Stonex in the United States. He was a feature speaker last Thursday at the Prairie Oat Growers Association convention in Saskatoon. The last time Linville was in Saskatchewan was back in July for Ag in Motion. At the time, there was a lot of concern about the potential for even higher fertilizer prices, considering the war between Russia and Ukraine. However, it turns out values for phosphate, potash, and urea are lower, but the same cannot be said for anhydrous or UAN, otherwise known as urea ammonium nitrate. When you look at the global uh, picture, we have seen supplies improve. We've seen demand down. Uh, this thing has changed fairly substantially. Looking at the urea markets, of course, you know, back when we talked five months ago this summer, we had a situation where European production looked like it would never turn back on. You know, natural gas prices were so high priced and, you know, Chinese exports were almost non-existent. There's still questions about Russia exports. There's a lot of questions. Well, since that time, Russian exports have been solid. Chinese exports are picking up. European production has improved because they're Natural gas price has gone from $100 an MMBTU down to $30, $40 a ton range. The market has fundamentally shifted. Not only that, we see global demand also making uh, decisions as well. We see farmers that have been pulling back on their decisions for nitrogen because of the high price. That's helped alleviate some of the price. Phosphate and potash. This fall run does not so far look like it's been a phenomenal run. We think the farmers are making the decision. I can, I can wait another year. I can mine the soil again. Demand has been down there. So... As the market always does, high prices cure high prices. Uh, Supplies have been coming back. Demand has been down. Prices have been down uh, for those three, uh, phosphate, potash, and urea, have been down almost constantly since late March, early April. Linville isn't sure the fertilizer price is low enough for producers to start stocking up for next year. I don't think anybody wants to stock up just yet. Now, we've got the prepaid period coming up here very shortly, you know, just the same as in Canada as it is in the U.S. By the time we get to the end of December, right after Christmas, there's going to be some money that needs to be spent because as much as we hate high-priced fertilizer, we hate taxes even more. But it's one of those situations where it sure feels as though some of these values are actually getting low enough on fertilizer and the grain prices are holding that those ratios are actually getting rather attractive. They're not as good as what we've seen in the last five years, but they are definitely in the mix. I think that demand is going to be a little sketchier just because I think everybody's seen prices that have been falling and nobody wants to step in the front of that trend, but eventually the demand has got to come. When we look at what our 2023 grain out expectations are, you know, at least in the U.S., we're talking 93 million acres of corn, almost 50 million acres of wheat. That's a big demand period for fertilizer. Same thing in Canada, same thing around the world. There's a lot of demand coming at us. We just have to bridge this next 30 days. 
Linville isn't sure that high grain prices will stay in place long enough to offset high fertilizer prices like UAN. When you look at UAN and anhydrous, especially across North America, there is a limited number of producers, a limited number of manufacturers. And because of that lack of competition, those numbers are able to hold higher. It's not anything where these outfits are working together to keep the price high. It's just fewer parties means fewer opportunities for somebody to just say, I'm going to cut my price significantly and I'm going to go sell something. When you look at urea, when you look at phosphate, you know, these are markets that are produced all around the world. Tons and tons of opportunity for somebody to just step up and say, you know what, I don't like the market as it is. I'm going to sell lower and get in front of it, and that makes somebody else mad, and they drop their price. Fewer competitors, fewer producers means prices get a little stickier. And he says it won't be getting any easier to predict prices. It's getting more volatile. I, I can tell you the phosphate and potash to a certain extent, we saw some of this coming. Urea did not see it to this extent. This has been a little bit of a shock. I thought it was going to be a while before we started to see prices where they're at today. And unfortunately, when we look at the long-term outlook, especially for nitrogen, now through 2025, this is something we talked about today in the presentation. You know, we, It takes a long time to build a new world-class facility. So we know what's going to be, be built between now and 2025. And we have a general idea of global demand between now and that same period. Global demand for nitrogen grows faster than global production does. So that means there gets to be less and less extra inventories out there. So if we have a situation where North American production goes down, European production goes down, China stops exports, Russia gets blocked from the world market. These events, while they would already be a major factor, as excess supplies get smaller and smaller and smaller, we have less that we can go call on. These events cause even more volatility and more of a knee-jerk reaction for the marketplace. And he had these final thoughts. You know, a lot of the same things we talked about this summer. A lot of farmers continue to come to us and ask, what can I do to alleviate some of the risks I'm seeing out there? And unfortunately, we're still working on trying to get fertilizer paper going. You've got grain options, things like that. We continue to be a proponent. If you buy inputs, sell outputs. If you sell outputs, buy inputs. That is our best mechanism to lock in that profit if the opportunity exists. Josh Linville is the director of fertilizer for Stonex in the United States. He was a guest speaker last Thursday at the Prairie Oat Growers Association annual convention in Saskatoon. It's now 1 o'clock. That means it's time to check the GX94 precision weather forecast. For the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. Partly to mainly sunny, winds west-northwest at 10 to 20, a high of minus 24, a wind chill of minus 35. For tonight, clear, winds south-southwest at 10 to 20, a low of minus 34, a wind chill below minus 40. For tomorrow, partly sunny, winds south-southeast at 10 to 20, a high of minus 16, a wind chill of minus 26. Thursday, cloudy. Winds northeast at 10 to 20 and a high of minus 12. For Friday, partly to mainly cloudy, a high of minus 8. And Saturday, sunny, a high of minus 6. In the Paw, it's minus 29 degrees, Swan River minus 28, Dauphin minus 23, Brandon minus 20, Show Lake Russell minus 24, Roblin minus 27. Regina is at minus 21, Saskatoon minus 31, Hudson Bay minus 28, Broadview Mooseman minus 23, Indian Head minus 26, Winyard Wadena Kelvington minus 27.
The Yorkton-Melville region has a sunny sky, a west wind at 11 kilometers an hour. 75% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 26 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 34 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.